Well, good morning and uh, welcome. Take your Bibles as we continue on in our study of Second uh, Thessalonians, and we are going to be looking in the first chapter, verses 6 to 10 today. That's page 959 in our Bibles here. Please follow along if you can get your eyes on a copy of the text uh, somehow. You know, many times here we talk about the gospel. The gospel is a word that means what? Good news. Good news. Good news. The good news is that in spite of our sin, God loved us and sent Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to earth as a baby, grew up so that he could die on the cross, bear our sins, rise again, and then offer us the free gift of eternal life. Wow. That is good news. We love good news. We love any good news. If you've had somebody traveling uh, in this last week of storms or in this cold and, and you're kind of concerned for them getting from point A to point B or getting home and, and they get home, you go safely, that's, that's good news. If you went to the doctor with a concern and it turns out it wasn't anything serious, that's good news. But the reason good news is good is because there was potential of bad news. There could have been an accident, a slide in the ditch in this weather. There, it could have been cancer. The nature of good news is that there was something that could have been bad. So the nature of the good news that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ is what? The option is, instead of eternal life, there is eternal judgment. And today, uh, we will be talking in this passage about the uncomfortable truth of God's eternal judgment, uh, justice, and hell itself. I'd like us to read, uh, to begin with, verses 6 through 9. That's the judge, judgment or justice portion of this passage, and of course it's most of the passage as well. He's writing to uh, the Thessalonians who are under persecution because they believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, God is just... He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. God is just and will eternally judge, punish those who oppose or reject the good news of the gospel. The first statement of verse 6, you, you may have it worded a little bit different. It is right or it is righteous just, justice or, or something like that. But the issue is that a key trait of God, his attribute is that he is just. Justice is good. Justice is good and justice is a result of his holiness. Holiness is, is good. The beverage you've had already this morning or are drinking maybe now needs to be holy. If it's got poison in it, you don't want it. The soup you might have for lunch has to be holy. It can't have anything that's going to, to poison you and sicken you. And likewise, 
sin cannot get a pass from God and God be holy. In fact, um, if God did not judge sin, there would be no heaven because heaven is a place of holiness and perfection. Sometimes people hear this truth of the justice of God and say, oh, but I thought God was compassionate. I thought, you know, you, you Christians, you, 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 isn't, isn't God loving? Why do you talk about his justice? The reality is that justice and grace merge in the character of God because justice and grace merge at the cross. At the cross was perfect justice because God indeed judged the sin of the world. He just poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. And so there is justice, God's wrath on sin, but then there is, because of that, there is grace because then since Jesus paid for our sin, he can offer us eternal life. We can go to heaven because someone bore God's justice in our place. But what about those who reject his grace? What about those who oppose God's offer of grace? What happens? The, the next few, these verses are about what happens if you turn down grace because that's exactly what many of the people of Thessalonica, the city where this church was, that's what they were doing as they were persecuting the believers, those who believed in Christ. And Paul promises this, he will, God is just, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, Thessalonians, Thessalonians and to us as well. That's Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, the, 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 the team, in verse, from verse 1. Just a little bit of a review last week in uh, Acts chapter 17. It turns out we know a lot about how this church at Thessalonica began. Paul and Silas and Timothy come to town, and as is their practice, they go to the Jewish synagogue first because the Jews would have the background of the Old Testament. And it says in Acts 17 that some of the Jews believed. They go, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, because that's what Paul clearly said, that the Jesus who died and rose again is the Messiah of your Old Testament. And some, you know, like the lights went on, they said, yes. Some of the Jews believed, it says actually many of the Gentiles, non-Jews, believed. There's a better response among those who were not Jewish. But some of the Jews who did not believe, in fact, became malicious enemies of the gospel and thus of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so they actually hired troublemakers to go out and cause a riot in the city. And they form a mob and they go to Jason's house. Jason evidently is the guy who was hosting Paul and Silas. Fortunately, Paul wasn't there. I wonder if they would have killed him. Paul wasn't there. And so Paul has to escape by night to get to Berea, some 45 miles away. And it didn't stop there because those enemies of the gospel who heard he got to Berea, they followed him and caused a stir in that city as well. So Paul had to finally escape down to Athens, uh, about 300 miles further south. So that's persecution. But think of this. Paul knew that he had left behind the Thessalonian believers who couldn't run away. They lived there among these people who hated the gospel now. 
These were new Christians. Paul had, had written both First and Second Thessalonians just months after starting the church there. And these Thessalonians would have to, have to be facing these kind of antagonistic people in the market or, or in the fields and, and the glare and the, and, the, and the worry and the fear. And Paul says, God is just. You can rest on that. What made them so angry, the Jews? They, they refused to believe the good news that we are saved as a gift of grace when they thought it was all about we have to keep all the laws. And they had this pride that they were doing it right by how good they were. But God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And it almost seems crazy that people would oppose the good news. But for 2,000 years, people have opposed the good news and troubled those who believe the good news, imprisoned and put to death. And so Paul assures them God is just. Someday everything will be fair. There will be complete retribution. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and, and will give relief to you who are troubled as well. Did that happen? This giving of relief? Um, did Paul live to see the day when you know, God's angel came and zapped those who were persecuting the Christians? No. Were Paul and his ministry partners able to relax from this point on because God is just? Or was he promising something that never came to pass? We, we know the persecution continued. We know that, that Paul continued to be persecuted throughout the New Testament era of planting churches. He would end up in Rome in prison for over two years because he preached the gospel. The second time he went to, to prison in Rome, 2 Timothy is when it seems to imply that he was martyred. <clears throat> he died for his faith. And over the last 2,000 years, countless thousands of Christians have been imprisoned, tortured, and put to death because of Christ. So what is Paul saying? How do they receive justice and relief? Paul is promising the future and there's, there's this whole sense that what happens in this life will include sin and suffering and evil and opposition. But there will be a day when there is justice. It doesn't come always in this life. And he seeks to answer that question, when it will be. He says, middle of verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Now that raises some questions like, when does that happen? And what is this judgment? And who is the judge? And who, is the one be who are the ones being judged? So let's kind of think through this question. Who does the judging in verse 7? This eventual judging is by who? the Lord Jesus. Jesus, we know as Savior, will also be judge. And, and so again, some people think, well, I thought, I thought Jesus said, I didn't come to con condemn the world, but to save the world. Did Jesus say that? He did. Two different occasions. Uh, we have it in John 3, 17, 12, 47. And in fact, Jesus did come to save, not to condemn. That was his purpose. 
But what about those who reject his grace? That's when someday, if someone rejects the grace of God, the Savior becomes the judge. Very clearly, Jesus said, first of all, moreover the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Acts 10, he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's that? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. His resurrection is giving him the validity to judge. 2 Timothy 4.1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? And in view of his appearing in kingdom, I give you this charge. Jesus Christ will be the judge. When? Well, Paul, in one sense, is addressing this in broad terms to simply make the point to the Thessalonians, you can be sure God will make things right. Uh, there are several kinds of judgment. There are several times of judgment of, of unbelievers that we find in, in, in Scripture, biblical prophecy. Uh, uh, this particular one, though, seems to be found at a particular place. And it's kind of like the hallmark. This is when, when Jesus is coming as judge. So just a little bit of review. Let's, let's look at, our, at, a, at a prophetic timeline. What do we know of where we are now and when this particular judgment will be? We are living in what's called the church age. After the cross, it's 2,000 years later. We are somewhere there, and we are anticipating what Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture of the church. That's not a judgment, of course. It is actually rescuing believers from judgment, saving us from the wrath that is to come, as Paul would told the uh, Thessalonians in the first letter. There is wrath coming, and believers, we will be taken up. We, are, we rise to the air to meet Christ who takes us uh, to heaven. Meanwhile on earth, there is a seven-year time of tribulation, sometimes called the Great Tribulation. Revelation is mostly about this time of judgment, and it's followed by a millennium, an amazingly wonderful time on earth, <clears throat> and the final dispensation. But the end of the tribulation is when Jesus comes back as judge. So the first time before the tribulation, the next thing on our calendar, if you will, is that he will rapture us, but then he's going to return. The second coming is not the same as the rapture. The second coming is about judgment. In uh, Matthew 24, uh, Jesus was talking about this when he said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Do you recognize that in verse 7? This is when he comes with his angels. This is when he comes to judge. Then, those, then these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So Paul was speaking of a specific judgment. It is not the final judgment. The Thessalonian persecutors, as well as any unbelievers, there is, in, that, in a real sense, there is a judgment we'll talk about later that is immediate, but eventually, end of the book of Revelation says, there will be a final judgment called the great white throne uh, judgment where all of unbelievers are raised to life. Did you know that? Unbelievers will be raised to life to be judged, and then the end is the lake of fire. So that is the, that is the 
the, the overall plan of judgment. Uh, obviously, the Thessalonians here that are, were doing the persecuting, they, they, didn't, they aren't going to be here. I mean, they, they've already died, right? But uh, this judgment at the end of the tribulation marks that conclusion in one sense. So why did, why did Paul, in this uh, revelation, uh, point to Jesus coming with, at the end of the tribulation, was he confused with, with when it's going to happen? No, Paul wasn't confused. Uh, of course, Paul didn't have this chart. Um, but the, seriously, the, the whole plan of God for the future had not yet been revealed. It was still several decades after Paul before John received the revelation of Jesus Christ which indeed wrapped up a lot of the details. And Paul simply was told through the Spirit to comfort the Thessalonians by describing this moment of judgment that would be coming. He will pay back. He will give you relief. He will punish. Whether you follow the chart in the judgments is, is not the main thing here. The point is simply this. Everyone who rejects the gospel, hates the gospel, opposes or persecutes those who proclaim the gospel, will face the sobering justice of God. No one fights God in his word. And God's people who proclaim his words and gets by. The gospel has enemies because the gospel is the real battle. If there is a single objective of Satan, it is to keep people from believing the gospel. That is what he is about, number one. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age, a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you think of this era through the eyes of Satan, this is what's going on. When there's a Christian like you living in your neighborhood or working with who you work with, if there's anything Satan wants to accomplish, it is to blind the eyes of those around us from understanding the gospel. Satan will do anything just to keep us distracted from proclaiming the gospel. It's really why he persecutes Christians, is to keep us focused on the persecution instead of the proclamation. Persecution for the gospel is not as important as proclaiming the gospel. If persecution, being mocked, ridiculed, can cause us to become so focused on trying to stop and avoid the persecution, Satan's actually accomplished his objective. But if we ignore his objective and keep proclaiming the gospel, that's what Satan hates. And we can trust and relax because God will take care of those who persecute. There is sobering justice. Our Savior will one day be the judge. So who judges? Jesus judges. Who is judged? Verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's who. 
uh, probably because of the way it's stated grammatically, he actually has in mind two groups. First of all, those who do not know God may be a reference in that context to the Gentiles. In other words, they didn't even know who God was, yet there were more Gentiles who believed than, than, non, uh, than the Jews. So first of all, Gentiles, but then secondly, that second line may be a reference more to the Jews in that synagogue who had just heard the gospel. They did know God. They had the same Old Testament we do that described exactly who God is and that he would send the Messiah. So with that, all that knowledge, they yet chose to not obey the gospel. Usually we, we see in the New Testament the term believe the gospel, right? So sometimes, there's a number of times Jesus, John, Paul will use the word obey the gospel. It, it really means the same thing, but it's kind of uh, uh, casted in sense of you have a choice to respond positively or negatively. What will it be? Will you obey the gospel? And the Jews especially are really held more accountable. They were guiltier because of all they knew, and they had the gospel right there in front of them, the good news of Jesus, and they refused <clears throat> to obey it. So who has judged anyone who rejects or opposes the gospel? Because God so loved the world that he sent his son. God designed the whole history of mankind to provide a savior. And then when providing that kind of grace, someone says, no, absolutely not. And then to even choose to oppose those who proclaim it, God will judge. This passage doesn't mention it, but we do understand that some are judged, and that means others are not judged, right? That's the good news. Who is not judged? Those who believe. Whoever believes in him, Christ, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The one issue is the cross. But you, if you've believed in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This judgment issue, facing the justice of God, is off the table if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. John three thirty six: the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Already, even while we're living here, eternal life has begun. We have eternal life. But the one who does not obey, that's where John uses it, who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, we've all started out with the wrath of God on us. And it's something we, I think, often have forgotten. Especially if you're someone like me, I came to faith in Christ very young, probably at six years old, and understood the simple truths of the gospel. And, and so it's kind of hard for me to conceive of God's wrath being upon me. And, but it's all true, whether you were saved very young or midlife or, or, or late in life, or perhaps you might be somebody who is still coming to understand clearly the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Maybe you've not yet put your faith in Christ, but, but you're understanding it, so you're going to. But whatever, wherever, whatever stage it is, the issue is that eternal judgment is everyone's original destination. We all deserve the wrath of God. Believers in Christ are not going to heaven because we're more deserving. Certainly not because we're better people. But those who believe in Christ are the ones who simply just realize we cannot earn our way to heaven. And in fact, 
Jesus earned all of it in our place. And that's the only reason. Faith in Christ is the only reason that anyone can escape the sobering judgment of hell. Sorry, just uh, getting ahead on my PowerPoint. Which brings us to verse 9, the description of eternal judgment, often known as hell. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That is a sobering moment in this passage. This is a description of what is elsewhere usually called hell. This is simply a description of hell. First of all, the word everlasting is a word you cannot avoid. Punishment that does not end. The punishment for rejecting Christ is not annihilation, as some claim. Annihilationism is the claim that um, the judgment of unbelievers is simply that they cease to exist, that they become a, a special class that just somehow disappears like a plant that dies or, or an animal that dies after the body rots. It's, there is no future. Why? Well, that's true of plants and animals because they are not living souls. They were not created in the image of God. But all mankind that's been created in the image of God has eternal souls and live forever. Jesus said, John 5:28, that those who have done evil will rise, resurrected, to be condemned. Daniel, likewise, 12:2, says they will rise to everlasting shame and contempt. Jesus described hell as a place where their worm or life does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9.48. Revelation 20 speaks of eternal torment and no rest day and night. That truth not only sobers us, it compels us to be those who proclaim the good news. That's why we talk about the good news, because we understand the reality of the bad. That's the reason that we are involved in, in overseas missions as well as local, locally presenting the gospel here. That, that's, why, that's why couples from our church, Stouses or Keefs in the most recent years, have, have spent years of training and now they're spending years to learn a culture, to learn a language, to be able to translate the Bible so that they have what is in front of us in America any day of the week. Multiple apps and translations, right? But so that they can have the eyes unveiled to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. It not only sobers us, but it compels us. Everyone will be somewhere forever. We all die and all will be resurrected. There is no judgment for those who have put their faith in Christ. There is judgment for those who reject or resist the gospel. But everyone will be somewhere forever. This Bible, the Bible speaks of, of where unbelievers are, where believers are. 
after death. And there is, it's still kind of, you know, here's this term and that term, and it's, it gets a little confusing, but let's just take a look at some of the, some of the terms. Sometimes it says that uh, someone, they will go down to Sheol. That's probably not a reference to hell itself. It, it's more of the grave or death, not specifically hell. It's not a main word for hell. The word Hades is used sometimes of, of hell or, or torment. Uh, Jesus used it that way, really in contrast to Abraham's bosom, we'll see later. Uh, the main word is Gehenna. Uh, that's used in the New Testament. It's a term actually that's borrowed from the, uh, the dump near Jerusalem that was burning constantly with all the garbage and stuff. And so that became the word for hell. And uh, Jesus uh, used that repeatedly. And then finally, in the, as we mentioned in the end of the book of Revelation, the final abode of unbelievers when they're resurrected is that they're, they're put into the lake of fire, whatever that is. It's beyond our imagination. It's, it's God's sober justice. Meanwhile, believers, Jesus described how uh, Lazarus was uh, Abraham's bosom, just a descriptive term of, of a place of eternal comfort. And, and there's debate, you know, is that something different for Old Testament people or New Testament people? But it's a place of eternal comfort. Or Jesus described it as paradise. He told the, the thief on the cross who's had simple faith that says, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. That's not a specific place. That, that, that we see it, a term that I should say, it's not a specific term we see anyplace else, but it really is descriptive of something else that we really like to see in the New Testament. Three times it says that when we die as believers, we're with the Lord. Isn't that all that matters? We don't know exactly what, what, what the surroundings, the environment, we don't know what heaven exactly all looks like, but we know we'll be with the Lord. But eventually, we also will be raised, and then we're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, which is described more in detail in, uh, in Revelation. A, a, the city, uh, the, the, yeah, all the different streets of gold and, and, and that description. So there is some things that we know about this, and Paul is, is bringing, really, he's writing to Christians, comfort that you realize God will be just. And if you're interested in some of these passages, there's an outline, there's a, a handout on the back table. You're welcome to uh, pick that up. But heaven is real, and hell is real. Uncomfortable but compelling truths. The tragedy is actually twofold in verse 9. Not only will they be punished with everlasting destruction, Look at the second line, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. The other tragedy of unbelief is not only hell, but that a person is eternally separated from Christ. It's kind of a what could have been. To be able to live forever in the presence of Almighty Judge, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And yet, there is no appeal to those who hate Christ to spend forever with Christ, but they, they, will, they are missing out on that. The presence of Jesus in his glorious majesty. Are you ready for some good news? That's verse 10. And he transitions to the glorious truth of God's amazing grace to those who believe in Christ. 
picking it up in the middle of verse 9, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Referring to uh, the same ending time that, that we will be, first of all, a display, exhibit A. Notice the, the two phrases in, in verse 10, glorified in and marveled at. Glorified in is different than, than being glorified by. So Christ on that day, when he comes to judge, is going to be glorified in us as if we're like a, an audience seeing the justice of God. But as he comes to judge, we become that exhibit of, what, what does he call us? Holy people. Now, we know we're sinners. We know that we've been sinners throughout our life. We're still struggling with sin. We were sinners before we were saved. We're still sinners today. But there we will be holy people. So as Christ judges some, there we are. Objects of the grace of God made holy. Because you see, the moment you put your faith in Christ, your account of sin eternally is wiped out. And you are declared qualified for heaven. And so, there is sin in our past. Before we are saved, it is unforgiven sin. After you come to faith in Christ... We are forgiven sinners. We go from unforgiven sinners to forgiven sinners to when we get to heaven, we're not sinners. We're holy. And, and, and now our, our status matches our life. Won't that be wonderful? Past, unforgiven, present, forgiven, future, no sin at all. God's holy people what a display of the grace of God that we are, he is glorified in us because we are holy, which compels us as we're living in this piece of life to be growing in holiness. If you recall in our study of 1 Corinthians, the, uh, the little summary statement of the book was called to be holy. Are you distinguishable as growing in holiness? Because if holy is what we're going to be, then holy is what we must be becoming. That has to become our goal. That is our future. Let's work towards the future. We never achieve sinlessness, obviously, in this life, but that Jesus can be glorified in us, through us, more and more. And then at that same moment, the second phrase says, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. That's where we, we glorify him. We praise him. It seems specifically to praise him for his justice while we are objects of his grace. The discussion of heaven and hell is heavy truth because the thought of eternal suffering is awful indeed. But we cannot choose the truths we like. 
if it is truth, and it is truth. But the good news is that God has offered us his amazing grace. Larry Moyer has written, God is not trying to scare you out of hell with bad news, but invites you to heaven with good news. That, that, that's, that's the heart of God. And if we, if we, for any reason, are questioning the heart of God, let's, let's remember his compassion for the loss. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, his promise of coming back, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient toward you or with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if for any reason you go, the justice of God, you mean God wants to... No, God doesn't want to judge anybody. His desire is that all would turn. Repentance just means to turn from not trusting Christ to trusting and believing, obeying the gospel, right? Trusting in Christ. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And in fact, that's what these important verses are. For God so loved the world. That's, that's the whole world. That's everybody. That he gave his one and only son. That's Jesus on the cross who paid the penalty for our sin, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the choice we have that will determine where we will be forever. Everyone is somewhere forever. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his purpose, but to save the world through him. So that is the heart of God. What, what distinguishes whether you are the object of grace or justice? What does it say twice in these verses? To be marveled at by all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed. Believe. Believe. Believe is not just believing that he died for your sins. It's putting your faith, trust, dependence on him. What are you depending on? Some of the Jews and non-Jews believed in Thessalonica. Others refused to believe. People today, some of them believe and some of them do not believe. Why, why would someone not believe? I think the core issue is pride. Because you have to admit you're a sinner that needs to be saved in order to be saved. You have to realize that you cannot earn heaven on your own. If you refuse to believe a diagnosis, you will refuse a cure. And so do we believe the gospel about our sin? First of all, that I can do nothing, that I am a sinner, that I can do nothing to fix my sinful condition, but that Jesus has come and paid the penalty for me in my place, and then I must put my trust in him and him alone. And so what keeps people from responding to that is, is this sense of, well, I'm, I, I'm a, but I'm a good person, and look at the good things I've done. I go to church, I've given money to people, I've, I've helped people, I, I, I deserve to get to heaven. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel, that's pride. And so the issue is to humble ourselves, to say, I could do nothing to deserve, deserve heaven, but instead, Jesus earned it for me. So the question with this word believe is, have you believed in Christ for your eternal life? To believe is to trust. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Through the years, I've shared this illustration before. The three circles. Uh, it kind of just helps a person to 
distinguish. So where am I spiritually? Have I believed? Have I not believed? Here's the question. What are you trusting in for eternal life? If you were to die tonight and come before God and he'd say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So if you were about to say, I think I deserve to go to heaven, that's the wrong answer. Three circles, C, W, and C plus W. What are you, which, one is, which, which one are you trusting in? Is it Christ that he paid for your sins on the cross? Is it good works? You're a good person. Or are you trying to you know, cover your self and say, well, it's both. What does the passage say? It's not by works. It, it, it's clearly not by qualifying. Can it be Christ plus works? No, that's almost like a, like a trick, false answer because if you're trusting in Christ plus works, ultimately you're trusting in works because if you don't have works, you won't make it. So it's not Christ plus works. What is it? It is Christ alone. What are you trusting in for eternal life? If you've put your faith in Christ already, maybe this is something you could share with others. But if you are not sure if you have placed your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that today. As, as, as you've heard what's at stake, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Perish eternal life. Will you put your faith in Christ? Let's bow our heads together. And I just want to kind of share what you could uh, if, you, if, you, if you're understanding the gospel, the good news, here, here's a prayer that you could pray. You'd be saying something like this, Dear Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I deserve eternal judgment because of my sin. But now I know the good news that Jesus took the judgment for my sin in my place on the cross and rose again. So right now I'm putting my faith in Christ alone for eternal life. I realize I'm a sinner, that my sin means I deserve God's judgment, that I realize Christ took my place, and I'm putting my faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone who has understood the gospel, the good news today and has placed their faith in you. I pray that they could grow in their understanding, that we would um, bask in the privilege of receiving a gift that you paid for entirely on the cross and that we would in humility not try to add anything to the sufficiency of what you accomplished on the cross, but to know that you paid it all and we're trusting in you and you alone. And then you promise that we will have eternal life and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.